Hello and welcome back to Kairos. I'm here today with Dr. Michael Lockwood to talk about Luther and idolatry. Michael, good to have you on. Thank you. Good to be here. Um, Michael has written this book that I have here in front of me, The Unholy Trinity, Martin Luther Against the Idol of Me, Myself and I. So this is what we've got Michael on to talk about today. Looking forward to the conversation. So, Michael, perhaps you can uh, begin by telling us how did you become interested in uh, this topic of Luther and idolatry, um, chicken and the egg question, which came first, Luther or idolatry, and how did this sort of come together? Well, I, I'm a Lutheran pastor, so I've always somewhat been somewhat interested in Luther, mm. and like most Lutheran pastors, I'm aware of, was always aware of what he says in the large catechism about whatever we fear, love, and trust more than the true God is effectively our God. Uh, but I didn't really know what to do with that statement. It gives you a definition of idolatry, but doesn't really give you a systematic framework for mm-hmm. analysing idolatry and the different roles that idols play in people's lives. Um, so what sparked an interest in looking at that much more deeply was listening to a number of Presbyterian scholars um, uh, Dick Kyes, uh, Mark Ryan, people probably don't know these names, Tim Keller, some people mm-hmm. would know. Mm-hmm. And they were um, using idolatry in a more systematic way in terms of analysing um, the functions that different idols played in people's lives um, to deal with the insecurity that people feel as a result of the fall into sin mm-hmm. and the breach of relationship between us and the true and living God. And they inspired me to see that it's actually a very, very helpful way of understanding the world around us, mm-hmm. uh, the unbelieving world around us, and, and what's actually going on with people spiritually. And they were using that for the purposes of apologetics and evangelism, mm-hmm. to sort of understand the people that you want to bring the good news to. And so that got me interested in the topic, and um, for the next three years or so as I was doing my PhD studies in St. Louis and every time I read a book or came across anything that related to idolatry I just started jotting it down mm. and it was only much later that I realized that Luther had something helpful to say, mm. <laughs> say wow. on the topic uh, that he had far more to say than what you simply find in the large catechism and when I started um, actually searching through Luther's works on idolatry, I realized it was actually a theme he talks about all the time. Mm. Um, He refers to it in every single volume of his works, often hundreds of times. Hmm. And so I started pulling all of that material together and realized that it fell into a pattern Mm -hmm. and that this pattern gave you a very, very powerful sort of systematic framework Mm. for analysing idolatry and understanding why it's so powerful in people's lives and get such a powerful hold on. Mm. There's a couple of things I want to pick up on there. So um, you mentioned that uh, one of the things I appreciate in the book is it definitely has this this, uh, evangelistic thrust or or, um, it's a very helpful way of thinking about how we communicate the gospel. Um, Yet at the same time, I know that in your, I think it's in the introduction, you note how this has been a somewhat neglected area of study. Yes. Um, And so I wonder if you can just tell us a little bit about that. Do you have any sense of why that is? Um, And I guess on the other side of that, is there something, 
Is there something particular about our time you think that could make this a helpful connecting point with the culture? Um, just your thoughts on that. Well, I think the main reason why it's been a neglected area is quite simple, and that is it's too close to home. Right. And we don't want to see our own sin. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a very strong vested interest in seeing, you know, seeing the speck in our neighbour's eye and not the plank in our own. Mm-hmm. And idolatry is... Yeah, not, not only do we not want to examine our sin, um, when we do examine our sin, we'd far rather look at the surface level sins. Mm-hmm. But idolatry get, goes right down to the heart. It's confronting, right? And Talking so I think mm. idolatry is, yeah, it's just simply too confronting mm. for people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we don't want to look at it. Mm-hmm. But because it's so confronting, it's also so liberating. Mm. And you can address it and actually mm. set people free from it. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed that resistance when I've taught people about idolatry too. Uh, I was invited by your dad actually to um, teach a group of students at ALC about idolatry. Okay. And one of the first comments that came up was like, we're really feeling convicted by this because mm-hmm. it was actually getting to their sin. Mm-hmm. But um, that's then a wonderful opportunity to proclaim the good news. Mm. and to actually set people free from something that was enslaving them. Mm-hmm. So although it's confronting, it's also, uh, in spiritual terms, I think, very much needed. Yeah, yeah. And, it, yeah, and it's, it's interesting how it's at the, one on, at the very same time confronting, I think, on a personal level, and yet there is something about this, this theme, this you know, biblical, theological theme, which seems to, to communicate with people in the sense that... Um, Everybody lives for something. Everyone's driven yeah. by something. Just these these basic sorts of ways of talking about having another God in this deep theological sense. It, it seems to be language that I've noticed, like you say, in Tim Keller and others, that um, it, it people's ears seem to open to this somehow in a way that they don't necessarily talk to talking about things like sin and using the word sin. Um, that's just, just curious about our time. And I, I, well, I think that gets to the other reason why I think this is such an important topic in today's society, but also a neglected topic, and that is that the idols of the Western world are largely hidden. Mm-hmm. So if you've gone to the Greco-Roman world in New Testament times, the idols are very obvious. Mm-hmm. They're, on, they're on every street corner in every temple. Um, I've spent a certain amount of time teaching in Nepal. Again, the idols are obvious. Mm-hmm. But the idols of the Western world are largely hidden because they're mostly idols of the heart. And so although they play the same role in people's lives that idols have always played, they're not identified for what they are. And, and the spiritual power that they have over people is, mm. is not recognised and identified. Mm. And so there's this process of actually unmasking these idols so that we recognise them for what they are that needs to happen. Mm. And that actually relates very much to how I think we need to start talking about sin in the Western world, particularly in these sort of post-Christian, post-modern times, where uh, if you go back a couple of generations where everybody was at least nominally Christian and probably had a Sunday school education in Mm -hmm. the Christian faith, and, and you could talk to them about sin and they would understand the category and 
probably feel convicted yeah, <laughs> when yeah, you talk yeah. about sin. Something to latch on to, yeah. And so I think one thing Tim Keller says is that, you know, a couple of generations ago, you could say to people, look, you know you should be good and you're not as good as you should be, mm-hmm. and therefore you need Jesus. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of an, an evangelistic approach that worked once upon a time. But these days, you say that to people and they're just as likely to say, well, why should I care about your God and his rules? Yeah. and who, I've who, got my own rules. Yeah. And who, yes, right. Who says what's good anyway? Yeah. yeah. I've got my own standards of right and wrong. And so he found, when he planted Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York, um, that they had to take a very different approach to actually get traction with people. Mm. That approach just didn't get anywhere. Mm. And so they started using idolatry as, not necessarily the language, but the the framework, the way of thinking as a way of approaching people. And so the basic way they started to approach people was to say, look, everybody's living for something. Everyone's got something around which they orient their lives that directs what they pour their energy and effort into that um, gives them hope. And, yeah. uh, and and that demands sacrifice from them and all these sorts of... Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And, and whatever they're living for, you know, if they start saying, well, this is what I need yeah. for my life to be complete. If I have this, then my life will be great. And if I don't, my life will be terrible. Well, then... You need to make sacrifices. Mm. You know, it's it's not a it's not an option because mm-hmm. you think you need that, and so um, you know, people will sacrifice their children. They'll sacrifice their health. They'll sacrifice yeah. all sorts of things to get whatever it is that's most important to them in mm-hmm. life. But it always lets them down in the mm-hmm. end because these idols can't ultimately deliver. Uh, what we seek from them. And so the message certainly for Keller became um, because you're living for something, you're actually a slave. If this is ultimately important, if you think you absolutely need this for your life to be worth anything, then you become enslaved to that thing, but you're actually enslaved to something that's guaranteed to let you down. And it's not hard to show that to people once you start to actually analyse their idols. Look, you know, it doesn't take a lot of reflection to see, hey, that's not actually going to do the job. That's going to let you down. Mm. And so the message became so more, uh, you're enslaved to something that's going to let you down. Mm. And, and this enslavement, this idolatry is actually offensive to the true God, who's the only one who can actually give you what you, yeah. what you need. Um, and he wants to give that to you by grace. Mm. So um, let's get into the the content of the book itself then a bit more. So perhaps you can just um, give us a bit of an overview, the unholy trinity. So it's got this this Trinitarian thing right up there, um, right up front. So just give us a bit of an overview of the content of the book. Well, as I started to look at Luther, I realized there were two main themes that came through again and again as he deals with idolatry. The first is that the greatest idol is always the self. Now, who do I really love? It's me. Mm-hmm. At least in the sense of being self-interested. Mm-hmm. So I might not always like myself, but I am always interested in myself and mm-hmm. what's best for me. And we generally act in my own yeah. self-interest. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so who do we really love? It's ourselves. And then who do we want to be able to trust in? It's ourselves. 
So it's not simply that we do trust in ourselves. We want to be able to trust in ourselves. Because if I can say, I did it, mm-hmm. then the glory goes to me. If I have to say Christ did it, well, then the glory goes to him, and my sinful nature doesn't like that. I always want to be able to take credit and take charge. I want to be in control, mm-hmm. and I also want to be able to say, hey, I did it, look at me, aren't I great? Yeah, yeah that's me. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so that's one thing that comes through very strongly in Luther. The, the, the second thing that comes through is that in order to understand idolatry, you first need to understand the true and living God. Mm-hmm. Because idols are always substitutes for the true and living God and the roles that he plays in human life. So we cut him out of the picture. He leaves a huge void that we've got to fill. But this is a triune-shaped void. It's, it's not a generic God that's missing. It's the triune God that's missing. And so effectively, you end up having to find substitutes for Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And your idolatry is going to look quite differently depending on which member of the Trinity mm. you're trying to compensate for. And so I guess the, the book begins by outlining those two main themes. Um, I also have a section where I show that this is actually biblical. This mm-hmm. is not Luther. This is Luther reflecting on the scriptures. And yeah. a very important theme in the scriptures that's often missed. Mm. Um, people notice it in the Old Testament. The Old Testament talk about idolatry all the time. People often miss it in the New Testament because they don't bother to look up the passages that the New Testament is quoting mm. and understand the Old Testament background um, to the words of Christ and the apostles. And when you look up that background, you realize that I, they're actually talking about idolatry all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the issue in the New Testament is that the idolatry in the New Testament was hidden. Mm-hmm. You know, so in the Old Testament, they're worshiping Baal and Asherah. Yes. Right? In the New Testament, what are the Pharisees worshiping? Outwardly, they're worshiping the true and living God. Yeah, sure. But in fact, they have all kinds of idols. One is the idol of self-righteousness. Mm-hmm. You know, that really they are trusting in themselves to save themselves, mm-hmm. not in the true and living God. Another idol is they're trusting in their tradition mm-hmm. rather than the word of God. So they're trusting in human thinking and in human traditions, etc., rather than in God. Mm. Um, uh, John's Gospel says that they preferred the glory that came from man than the glory that comes from God. Mm. So again, human praise was mm-hmm. an idol for them. Mm-hmm. That's why you know they pray on the street corners to be seen by men. Mm. So there's all this idolatry going on in the New Testament, but we mostly miss it. Right. Yeah, or don't know what to do with it necessarily. Like It just makes me think, just this past Sunday here at our church, we had reading from Ephesians 5, you know, where Paul has this discussion of, of sexual immorality and then just there's this little, you know, passing comment about, you know, um, which is idolatry when he's talking about greed and covetousness and, um, and, and you think, where did, where did that come from, right? But yes. I mean, it makes sense <laughs> if you've got this, this, I guess, iceberg beneath the surface that this is the tip of and, and, and this is the, the whole Old Testament background um, that they're thinking in terms of idolatry a lot more perhaps yeah. than, than, than we sometimes think. And you get the same thing in First John, mm. right? Last verse, it suddenly says, little children, yeah. keep yourselves from idols. Yeah, where did this come from? Yeah. And you're like, he hasn't mentioned idols, the yeah. whole book. Yeah. And then suddenly you realise actually the whole book is about idolatry. Right, right. We just, we missed it because we weren't switched on mm. to 
biblical thinking. So mm. I, chapter one, I try and show that this is biblical. This is not yeah. just Luther. This is he's discovered a biblical theme. But then after that, I I in essentially go through the Apostles' Creed mm. and Luther's understanding of the Apostles' Creed and the role that each member of the Trinity plays in human life. Because that's essentially what Luther does. First you need to know the true God. Mm -hmm. you know, it's just like a um, bank teller. To spot counterfeit money, they need to know what real money looks like. Yeah. And then you can spot the difference. Yeah. And so Luther does the same thing. First you need to know who the true God is and what role he plays in human life. And then it's quite easy to spot all the things that we put in his place. Yeah. And so I do that for each member of the Trinity and each sort of area of, of um, God's work of salvation. Mm. Um, so just in practical terms, you know, you think of, say, the first article of the Creed, God, God's providence. If we don't trust in the, uh, the Lord to provide, we always, you know, for our earthly needs, we've always got to find something else to provide. Whether mm. we trust in the strength of our own arm, it's my own hard work, it's my own ingenuity, that will provide. Mm -hmm. Or something like money fits very well into that. Mm. You know, if my wallet is fat, it will provide. I don't need the Lord to provide. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't help you so much when it comes to the second article of the Creed. How do I look at, you know, how, might, how will I be justified on the last day? Mm. But also, how can I hold my head up before you? Yep. And how can I look at myself in the mirror? Yep. Um, will I allow Christ to justify me, me with a righteousness that is not my own, that's a gift? Or will I try and justify myself? Mm. And most of us, actually all of us <laughs> at mm -hmm. times, mm -hmm. try and justify ourselves. Mm -hmm. But then we turn ourselves and our own righteousness into an idol that we put in the place of Christ. And then likewise with the, uh, you know, say the third article of the Creed, it's work of the Holy Spirit to enlighten us, particularly concerning God and the things of God. If we will not allow him to enlighten us, well, then we always be trying to be self-enlightened. Mm. And we will turn our own wisdom, our own human thinking, our own human traditions, our own human philosophies, ideologies, whatever, mm. into an idol that we put in the place of God. And the result will be that we then end up with a false picture yeah. of the world around us, but also of, of God. Yeah. It's really helpful, Michael. And I, I really appreciated um, your book and the systematic nature of it. You know, I think I'm sort of wired as someone who likes to see the, um, you know, the logic of things and, and the systemic nature of things. And so sometimes, you know, for us Lutheran pastors, you go to Luther's works and you, it's, you sort of don't know where to start. It sort of seems all over the place, as you well know. And, and so this, you know, this framework was really helpful to me in, in your book. Um, another thing I wanted to mention We'll put links to Michael's book, of course, in the description. Um, but this, one of the things I really appreciated is these contemporary applications you have at the end of each chapter or Christian responses from, um, from memory. I'm just wondering if you can comment a little bit on those as well because I think it's important to point out that this book is, is, is not simply a um, reprinted PhD dissertation. Maybe it is that, I don't know. But there's, there's a lot of practical... It's a, it's very much a reworked, a reworked PhD right. dissertation to make it more accessible. To you know, it's it's, it's it's not only the evangelistic, yeah. you know, contemporary connections with culture angle, but it's also um, a lot of helpful pastoral 
um, diagnostic sort of stuff. And so I just wonder if you can comment a bit more on those aspects of, of each chapter. Yeah. A lot of the pastoral reflections I only added later, so they're mm. only in the book, they're not in the dissertation. Mm. <laughs> um, but in a, in a sense, the pastoral reflections are always the same, mm. that we create these idols and then we try and serve these idols thinking that they're going to deliver mm. for whatever we need in life. And they always let us down. Um, but, but often we're not aware of what we're doing and we're not aware of how enslaved we are and, mm. and why our lives end up a mess. Mm-hmm. And so simply what I do in the book is expose these idols for what they are so that people are then prepared to hear the good news that they actually have a God who wants to give them all these things by grace. If only they will look to him mm. and trust in him instead, mm. of, instead of in their idols. Um, but that's multifaceted. Yes. It's not just, you know, the true living God wants to do this in every dimension of our lives. And often our proclamation of the good news tends to be very one-dimensional. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, give examples. So Romans 8, uh, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Mm-hmm. Right, so the good news that's centred in what Christ did for us on the cross to reconcile us with God. But the outworking of that means that now that we've been reconciled with God, he wants us to give us every good thing in every area of our lives and to do it by grace. Not mm. because we've earned it, but because he's kind and good. Mm. And so you, can, you, can, you start with Christ and the cross, but you can work that out to every single dimension of people's lives. Yep. And show how, well, in this dimension of your life, you were trusting in something that couldn't actually help you. You take them back to the true and living God who actually promises Mm. that he'll give them what they truly need. Mm. So, Michael, by way of how these sorts of things really bear out in in modern life, any other examples come to mind? Well, lots, but I'll I'll, I'll give you one. Mm -hmm. Um, You look at the, the, the catechism when Luther talks about the... Uh, first commandment, he says, you know, we are to fear, love, and trust God above everything else. And so it's, idolatry is partly about what we love and what we trust, but it's mm-hmm. also about what we fear. Mm-hmm. Now, when you fear the Lord and trust in the Lord, he actually takes all fear away. He says, fear not, because I'm with you. I'm going I'm to look out for you. You don't, mm-hmm. need, don't need to stress. But usually we f- trust in everything else. But the inevitable result of that is actually we start fearing everything. So if I trust in myself to provide for myself and to fix all my own problems, then everything hinges on me and my performance. And the reality is, well, then I'm going to have enormous performance anxiety. But I'm also going to be anxious about all the things in my world that I can't control. Mm. And they are infinite. Mm. <laughs> and so the inevitable result is fear. And this is, in fact, what psychologists are observing. Uh, There's been a very long-running study that's been going in the U.S. where they've been surveying uh, high school and uh, university students going back for decades, you know, with very, very large sample sizes. And what they've been finding is the anxiety levels have been going up 
and up and up and up and up. Mm, yeah, I can believe it. And it makes sense. As more and more people turn their backs on the true and living God, and it's all about us human beings and our performance, suddenly people become uh, enormously anxious about everything. But it's not just people out there no. who are anxious. It's people in the church who are anxious because we buy into that same performance mindset. And um, you know, clergy have the highest burnout rate of any profession in right. Australia. And Lutheran clergy particularly bad, I understand. Well, well um, there, not, there, not any better anyway. There, there was not necessarily any better. And there was a study done in the 90s by the Australian Productivity Commission that concluded that not only were the clergy the highest, they're the hardest working profession in Australia, and Lutherans topped the list in terms of most work hours. Right. So we say we live in by grace, but in reality, um, we slip into trying, trying to build the kingdom of God by the strength of our own arms. Yeah rather than trusting in the Lord who says, I will build my church. Mm -hmm. And so there is an idolatry there that we, we slip into thinking it's about us and how hard we work and how skilled we are at our jobs. And actually the Lord can't bless that. He can't bless it for a very simple reason, because if he did bless it, we would give all the credit to ourselves. Mm -hmm. And it would just perpetuate the idolatry. And I think that's one reason the church in the Western world is struggling so much, because the Lord won't bless this particular form of idolatry. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's so liberating to kind of, and I've found this liberating in my life. Right. And uh, this kind of gets back a little bit to the theme of we, um, we don't like to see our own idols. So I've written the book on idolatry, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I've identified this as a problem. When it came to my own life, I'd always let myself off the hook. Mm -hmm. And um, one day, I, a pastor friend of mine that I, I, I guess you'd call my, um, I go to him sort of for, for um, uh, pastoral guidance and counselling and, and uh, you know, I confess a father, etc. He said to me one day, Michael, you are clearly a workaholic and you are clearly in denial about it and you need to repent. <laughs> <laughs> Just a nice, gentle reminder. You know? <laughs> and I'm like, you're right, but I needed someone else to say it. Because mm -hmm. I'd done all the analysis, but mm -hmm. it was too close to home. Mm -hmm. But it's, you know what? It's so liberating mm -hmm. to actually repent mm -hmm. and to say, you know what? I'll say no to stuff. Yeah, I, I will you know, do what I can with this, the strength that the Lord's given me, but then leave the rest in his hands. Yeah. And any other examples come to mind that you want to mention? Well, one thing we perhaps haven't talked about very much is the whole area of what we love. So idolatry is not just about what we trust, it's what we love. And uh, often people today assume that love is always good, right? Mm -hmm. um, well, it really depends entirely on what we love mm -hmm. <laughs> and, um, and how we love it. And, and the ordering of our love, the priority that we give to the things that we love. And one of the biggest problems with human life is that we essentially love ourselves. In the sense of always being self-interested. I always want what's best for me. Mm -hmm. And this can be very, very damaging in our relationships. And so I often, you know, when, when, when couples come to be in 
wanting to be married, I say, well, look, most people go into marriage basically with the attitude of I love me and want you. Yep. Yeah, so I want you for what I think you will do for me. Mm-hmm. And if you don't deliver, well, then I'm out of here. And that's enormously destructive to the relationship. Um, and it's actually the complete opposite of what the New Testament says when it talks about husbands and wives and how we are to serve each other in a Christ-like way. Mm. Um, and the other, but the other, the other thing is that actually, like all idols, it lets us down. Because we always think if I, if I pursue what I think is best for me, if I look out for number one, if I you know, chase those things that I think will make me happy, that then I'll be happy. But there's a paradox. You know, philosophers actually call it the hedonistic paradox, which is that if you chase your own happiness, you never find it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And um, that happiness actually comes from chasing other things that are good. Mm-hmm. And then we experience joy as a byproduct. Yeah. And in particular, true joy comes from pursuing the true and living God and having him at the center of our lives and having our lives revolve around him so that he can then furnish us with joy Mm. as a gift that he can give that we can never provide for ourselves. And so I I often say to people, you know, it's worth noting that one of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. Uh And we think that we can provide that for ourselves, but in fact we can't because it's a gift of God and Mm. he must give it. And he gives it, he chooses to give it to those who will seek him mm. and, and allow him to be at the centre of their lives. Mm. And, um, and you even interact from memory at times with contemporary psychology and, and how some of yeah. these things are shown up there as well, which was interesting to me. Um, it's just, uh, I, I think I just want to highlight that this, um, you know, there's, there's deep biblical Lutheran theology in this book as well as quite an effort to engage with all sorts of ways in which these things, these dynamics manifest themselves in our world today, which I think is really helpful. Thank you. Um, and that was, that was a big part of the dissertation, hmm. was actually interacting with science, uh, with, well, with psychology, mm-hmm. philosophy, sociology, to show that um, all these things that, Luther and the scriptures talk about, they are empirically verifiable. This is, in fact, how people behave. Mm-hmm. And all of these other disciplines have been observing this. Yep. They just um, haven't understood it theologically mm. and haven't been able to put it all together within a theological framework. And because they're not thinking theologically, they can't actually bring the answer. Yeah, they respond very differently. Even, even though they can identify the problems. Mm. Um, and so for you personally were there any big um, surprises as you entered into this course of study and and writing of the book Um, it shouldn't have been surprising but maybe in hindsight I guess it's not so surprising the biggest surprise was just uh, how much this nailed me Mm. (laughs) (laughs) so the the first reason I um, wanted to look at this is because I was interested in evangelism and outreach yeah. and, and so you want to understand people outside the church and what drives them so that you can bring the gospel to them. But the more I started reflecting on well, what are the idols of our culture and what are the idols of people outside the church, the more I started to realize 
hey, wait a minute, those are all my idols. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and not just my idols, they're the idols of the church. Mm-hmm. You know, these are very much been embraced by Christians, both individually and corporately. Mm-hmm. And I guess we're, that suddenly realized, made me realize this is helpful becomes helpful for every aspect of pastoral ministry. Hmm. You know, this is helpful for preaching. This is helpful for counselling. This is helpful for um, pretty much everything that we do. Hmm. So it has changed your approach to those things, you think? Oh, absolutely. Hmm. Um, it, I think it's made my preaching much deeper mm-hmm. because instead of dealing with surface-level sins, we step back. Now, what's actually going on below the surface? What's actually going on in the heart? It's yep. driving driving that and when you deal with that you can also proclaim the gospel in a much deeper way Mm. because it's not just hey good news your surface level stuff has been forgiven Mm -hmm. (laughs) no it's that real deep warping of the human heart Mm. that's also been dealt with by Christ Um, I found it very helpful in sort of uh, counselling and uh, pastoral care but also in conflict resolution which I've um, had a fair bit to do with in recent years. Right. Um, because usually conflict is driven by some form of idolatry. Mm-hmm. And when, unless you actually identify the idolatry and, and deal with it, you can't really bring healing to the conflict. You might be able to come up with sort of an outward peace yeah. and compromise, but you can't actually achieve true healing and reconciliation. Mm. Mm. And usually people don't identify it. Mm-hmm. You know, so I want something and you're not giving it to me because mm. mm. you want something else. Yeah, yeah. And so I, but it's not just that I want it, it's I've turned this into an idol. So I have to have it. Yeah. Because if I don't have it, then I can't deal with life. Mm. Um, and so that's idolatrous. But then also, not only do I have to have it, I start trusting in myself to get it. Yeah. You know, rather than trusting in the Lord to provide it uh, or use the, the tools that he's given me, say, in his word or in prayer. Or, mm. And so because I have to have it and I'm trusting in myself to get it, then I'll start to manipulate. I'll start to tell half-truths. I'll start mm-hmm. to maybe bully and intimidate. You know, use all these kind of... Mm. human methods of getting what I want and often not even being aware of what I'm doing. Mm. Mm. Um, and furthermore, and this, this was a big, I think probably really big eye-opener for me. Uh, you know, as Lutherans, we talk about forgiveness and justification all the time. But I don't know that we actually reflect on it deeply enough. And one of the chapters of my book is all about reflecting on self-justification and what that actually looks like and all the different strategies that we human beings employ to justify ourselves. Mm. (laughs) And once you start analysing that, you realise that we do it all the time. And so once I've started to see that, I see it everywhere. I see it all around me. I see it in political life. I see it in church life. Mm -hmm. I see it in human interactions. I see it in my own family and I see it in myself. Mm-hmm. And even though, I, even though I have a framework to identify it in myself, I find even though I know what I'm doing, I still want to do it. Yeah. <laughs> because my sinful nature still wants 
to justify itself rather than to be justified through Christ. And so I find, you know, within my own family, if something goes wrong, whose fault is it? Well, it's Naomi's, of course, or one of the children. You know, I don't want to admit that it's my fault. And in, in conflicts that happen in the church in the same, same way. So I was involved in a yeah, fairly conflicted congregation. And when I first got there, everyone told me about the conflict. Mm-hmm. And everyone told me it was someone else's fault. Mm-hmm. Not one single person told me it was their fault. Because we don't see the plank in our own eye because we don't want to see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they call them blind spots for a reason. That's right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but you can't actually bring true healing unless you're willing to look mm. at that. Yeah, some, some real pleasing surprises for you in your own life and ministry. Um, as we begin to to draw to a close, um, you've mentioned a couple of times how confronting this topic can be, and how it was for you, and when you know the young people that you went to teach about idolatry. And so I'm wondering, um, let's say somebody's listening to watching this right now, and and they're beginning to feel confronted themselves about various idols in their own lives. Um, what what would you say? Final words of encouragement for for people. As I was working on this, someone once said to me, oh, that must be a very discouraging topic to, you know, spend so much time writing about. And my answer was actually, no, I haven't found it to be discouraging at all. Mm. Because whether we identify them or not, whether we're willing to look at them or not, our idols always leave us miserable. You know, they leave us uh, enslaved. They leave us and enslaved to things that always let us down. And, you know, promise much but deliver little. Mm. And so when you identify an idol, it's actually an avenue for new freedom and for new Mm. joy. And so I guess what I'd say to people is don't be afraid to examine your own idolatry because you have a Lord who wants to set you free, you know, who sent his son not only to die to bring you forgiveness for this idolatry, but also through the renewing power of his Holy Spirit, wants to set your heart free from it. And also through his, you know, graciously wants to give you all the things that you truly need. And it's extremely uh, liberating every time you uncover a new idol in your life. To, you know, in, say, wow, I've found a new avenue for joy and for peace and for Mm. freedom Mm. (laughs) that I wasn't aware of before. And uh, I I find that um, we have these avenues um, all around us. So I'll just give one little example. I've just returned from Nepal uh, a few weeks ago. And the church in Nepal is growing very fast. Mm -hmm. Um, Some estimates say faster than any other country in the world. You know, they're estimating like 11% per year, but... You know, it's exponential. Yeah. It's just it's just continuing to grow. The church there is very poor and it's very persecuted. They have very few resources. They have very little training. Mm. So what do they do? They pray. There was one thing that really moved me is to see the prayer life mm-hmm. of, of these Christians and how dedicated they are to prayer. Um, and how they've got nothing but they pray and then the Lord multiplies the loaves and fishes and mm. provides them with what they actually need. 
I then come back to Australia, and I've sort of, I've always been aware of this, but, well, sorry, I've been aware of it for a long time, but going to a place like Nepal just makes it that much more obvious. Mm -hmm. uh, in Australia, we face a problem. We face lots of problems in the church, you know, declining mm -hmm. membership and theological controversies and all sorts of problems. And what do we do? We call a meeting and we pray for maybe one minute. You know, we pray like a token prayer. And then we sit around and we plan and strategize for three hours. Which really reveals that our faith is in our human planning and in our human strategies and our human mm. solutions. And then we wonder why they don't work. Mm. Whereas the Nepalese, they might talk for two minutes and then they pray all night. Right. <laughs> and then the Lord provides an answer. But to me, that's actually a joyful discovery. It's like, mm, 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 mm. why are we trusting in ourselves to fix all of these problems? We, we have an almighty God who has infinite resources at his disposal. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, well, it's, it's certainly a necessary, um, a necessary word of encouragement for um, our church in Australia. And so I appreciate that very much, Michael. Um, the book is The Unholy Trinity by Dr. Michael Lockwood. Martin Luther Against the Idol of Me, Myself and I. This is um, published by Concordia Publishing House and um, it's a good book. I encourage you to give it a read and um, available online, I imagine, in the normal spots. Um, Michael, thanks again. It's a pleasure. God bless thanks you. Thanks for talking to me.